Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Echale Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Quintero, and I'm excited to be having uh, my dog trainer, current dog trainer, I would say, and hopefully last dog trainer with me on today's episode. <laughs> that depends uh, on you. I know, that depends <laughs> on me. Uh, Echale Podcast, just because I want to get to know her a little bit more, because when I met her, which was about two weeks ago, I felt a really good uh, vibe from her, and lately I've been like to energies and it was just kind of like another sign from the energy from the universe from god what it may be and i definitely want to get to know a little bit about her background and then uh later on in the podcast give us some tips for all our us dog parents so uh beer welcome to echale podcast how are you I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be on your podcast. Oh, no. Thank you so much. I want to get uh, yeah. started and get to know you a little bit because um, your background, where do you come from? What was a beer like when she was younger? Uh, so let's go ahead and start there. <laughs> okay. Um, I am 100% Palestinian. Oh, yeah. Um, I was born in Jordan, moved to the States when I was in the 70s, when I was three. Um, grew up in Southern California, pretty much up until my late 20s. Moved to New York to pursue a career in music, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, my first passion and love is singing songwriting. That was what I wanted to do professionally. Um that didn't pan out the way I wanted to, but I got 10 incredible years in New York, the good, the bad, and the very ugly. Wow. Um, so if you've ever lived in New York, you know how tough it could be. Um, did you ever I try, think it kind of made me... Did you ever try Broadway? Sorry to uh, interrupt. Like auditioning? <laughs> no, I did not try. I did some off-Broadway stuff. Uh-huh. Like off-off-Broadway <laughs> way off Broadway. But that's so funny. But um, I never did Broadway. That's so funny that you did theater because like, again, you just feel these vibes from people. And I used to do theater in high school and then I did do uh, theater productions in college and then uh, out, out of college. So in other small companies. And I th that's what I've always wondered because Obviously, you come from parents of immigrants. I come from parents of immigrants. But to a certain extent, our, our I guess you could say our accent, our native accent is um, neutralized because of a lot of the diction classes. Would you say so? Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we're, well, we grew up here, too. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think uh, like. Is that, you, is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. We grew you up. cut out a little bit. So I missed some of it. Oh, got it. No, I was referring to us growing up in different or us coming from immigrant families, you know, hearing a different type of English with an accent. But I think theater definitely helps you in improving your diction. And that is why when I met you, I definitely felt this like, oh, wow, she's one, well-spoken, two, 
Her diction is impeccable. And now it all makes sense because you did theater for such a long time. I didn't actually do theater for a long time. I did take drama in high school, but interestingly enough, I learned to speak English by watching television growing up. Wow. What were some of those television and shows? Yeah. The fucking news. Am I allowed to curse? I'm <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, you are. The, the news. I mean, I would sit there and watch the news or television. I mean, I was a kid. I grew up in the 80s, like uh-huh. the Huxtable, you know, 217. Um I mean, the Cosby show was called like the 80s was how I grew up. Right. That That's the era I grew up in. So we, we watched a lot of TV. And then because of my love for music, I would sit and back then it was cassettes uh-huh. with the inserts. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if that's before your time. But I was born in 91. With the inserts. Uh-huh. What? I was born in 91. So. Uh- so I, oh, I know. Go to, uh, oh, I can't. No, so like I know about the cassettes. Okay, so you had CDs. Well, I had both. Your era was, yeah. <laughs> I had both. So I would just sit and listen to songs and follow the lyrics and read. And I just, you know, um, and then being a part of the entertainment industry, you know, networking among those people, amongst those people, you really have to present yourself in a way um, and then now as a dog, uh, as a business owner, I can't sound like, yo, what's going, you know, I really have to, even though I have a street side, don't uh-huh. get me wrong. Um, I really have to know how to present myself. And I guess just that's who I, I'm just a badass. I don't know what to say. Just, <laughs> no, I love I it. I love it. I want to ask, uh, you know, studying music, obviously coming from a Palestinian family, was there any setback just you deciding to pursue music? Oh, absolutely. So I was, I started singing and speaking simultaneously at the age of two. And so a little background, my father's side of the family was the musical family. There's many singers in my father's side of the family, but they primarily live in the Middle East. So they sing Arabic music, but culturally, and I'm sure you can relate, you know, just because you probably come from a similar culture, Pursuing a career in music was extremely, it was like a no. It was a, it was taboo. It's absolutely unacceptable. In our culture, women get engaged by the age of 18 and then married. Um, and I kind of went against the grain and did not do any of that. And although I wanted to pursue a career in music, I didn't get that support from my family. And so it wasn't until my late 20s Um, around 27 that I said, you know, screw this. I'm just going to go after what I love. And that's when I made the choice to move to New York and pursue my career in music. At that point, no one can really tie me down and say, "Uh uh-uh, we're not, you're not allowed to do that. It was my choice at that, at that stage in my life. Culturally, did you see a lot of arranged marriages in your family? Yes. Did they try to arrange you with a marriage? Um, No, it was, it's not like the way I grew up in my generation, it wasn't like you have, this is the guy and you have to get married to him. Um, It was more, hey, there's this family, they have a son. Are you, you know, are you interested? And my answer was always no, because I, I wanted to do something different. I was raised. I I had ideas and a mind and, and beliefs of my own. I challenged those traditions. Um, so 
no one ever like put a gun to my head, you know, and said, oh, you have to get married to this guy or anything of yeah. that sort. But I was engaged at one point when I was 21 to wow. an Italian man. He was really great. <laughs> and that just ended. We were just really young. Yeah. What about, uh, yeah. I, I want to like still keep diving into the culture because you see in the Latino culture, a lot of machismo and yes. typically the machismo can really hinder, especially the female side, not necessarily the male. You still see it in like the vulnerability aspect between men. But for your culture, the Palestinian culture, when you wanted to go against the grain, how was your father reacting versus your mother was your mother more of like a submissive like oh my god like no don't go against your father do what he says and your father was very like gung-ho no believe it or not my dad was although strict and held on to the, the those you know traditions and the culture very closely he you know he didn't want me to pursue that but my mom you know she had the iron fist in the house of course she was no joke and um, she was the disciplinarian in the home. She uh, made sure that we didn't step out of line. Um, my dad definitely had a say in stuff, but my mom was the one who handled the girls and my dad would, you know, address the, the my brothers. Um, um, but nonetheless, it just was not something that they had envisioned for me. It was, in my culture, that was shameful. Wow. It was a shameful career to pursue, ideally for them. And maybe you can relate and a lot of your listeners can relate. It's like you go to school, you become a lawyer or a doctor. Like the, these, these ideas that just didn't fit who I was. And it's, so it's like taking a triangle and putting it in a square. I, I'm this creative, passionate, artistic, yeah. you know, Person, you can't make me a doctor or a lawyer. This just didn't fit. And the passion's not there because I don't think it was accessible or even a a, a possibility in their mind. Like it wasn't obtainable. You saw people in TV or singing and you said, well, that's not us. They probably grew, grew up in wealth. But when I thought about like becoming a doctor, because my family did want me to become a doctor, I was mm -hmm. like, I'm going to be miserable. I love talking, but people also are like, you talk too much. So they would hinder on, I guess, my talent and uh, um, try to shut the light. But now that I think about it, I'm like, dude, not to toot my own horn, but doing what I do, I could be making close to what a doctor makes or what a lawyer or what a teacher, yeah. what are these conventional jobs <laughs> that our parents wanted us to do? And I'm sure you can relate to that. Like once you follow your passion and once you figure out what you are meant to do in this life, then you're just like, wow, the possibilities of income are infinite. Well, first of all, I want to give you kudos for going against the grain and doing what it is that you wanted to do. Because I'll tell you in my experience on this earth for, I'll be 48 in February. In my lifetime thus far, the majority of people they don't pursue their passions. Yeah. They live in a box. They yeah. live paycheck to paycheck. They they work at a job they hate. They're afraid to go against their families. They're afraid to be shamed by their families or to bring shame on their families. So we have a lot of people, in my personal opinion, from my experience, walking around pretty unhappy. Yeah. And their happiness is all based on surface 
shit. It's the surface stuff. It's like, I'll buy this or I'll just go here or I'll hang out with my friends and I'll drink. But whatever that surface is for you. But the truth of the matter is a lot of people don't pursue their passion. So kudos for you for, yeah. for doing that. Thank you. So you moved to New York at the age of 27 to pursue a music career, not giving a uh, fuck what other people think. And you said you're going to not live in the what if, which I'm huge on not living in the what if. And you yeah. do it for 10 years. Did you yes. feel so, some type of way for from saying, I'm going to take a step away from this? Hell fucking yeah, I did. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'd never been away from my family. I was uh -huh. always like within a five to seven mile radius of my of my family. And that includes cousins and aunts and my parents and my siblings. I mean, I, I you know, I'd lived outside of my parents' home for like a couple of years at the age of 26. So what ended up happening is I, it had been a long life dream to go to New York and experience that energy. Ever uh -huh. since I was a little girl, I used to watch Dick Clark okay, and, and the ball drop on New Year's Eve yeah. and sit around the TV. And I had like had this dream and this like vision of me living there one day as a little girl, like eight, nine years old. And so I decided to go for a visit and I had a friend from high school who was a hairstylist out there. He's like, come visit. I went for four days. I extended my trip for seven. I freaking fell in love with it. I fell hopelessly, madly in love with New York, everything, everything. And so I came back. I gave my roommate my one month notice. I wow. packed my shit. I lived with family for one month by... That was in October. By January 4th, 2004, I was out. I was in New York. Wow. How, how, was, that how was that experience uh, in 2004? Because in 2001, New York experienced one of probably the most horrific tragedies. So a community Correct. is still rebuilding from 9-11. How was right. that living in New York for you? Because as a Californian, you're just obviously seeing the images, but two, growing up isolated from the recovery. Right. So, um, you know, I feel like, and not to take away from anyone who lived there, because I think their firsthand experience was very traumatizing. I remember driving to work that morning on 9-11 and listening to the stations talking about what happened. And I remember the visuals, you know, on television. It was very traumatizing. But when I went to New York, it had been just shortly, like uh, almost three years after, and the people of New York would share their stories. They wow. would talk about how that day, they would never forget it, obviously. And they would walk from, if you've ever been to New York, they would walk from like mid-Manhattan, Wow. Up or down to the Brooklyn Bridge. Like that's a long yeah. stretch of walk, right? Or to get to, or to walk uptown. Like I don't think they could get to the, to walk uptown from downtown to walk uptown to get away from the epicenter of it all. Um, I mean, the trauma existed there. Yeah. They, it, it doesn't go away. And I remember going down to ground zero. There was nothing there. They were still building the new, the new. Yeah. Um, Tower, I guess. Oh my God. Memorial. Well, it's it's a, a memorial. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. So there was nothing there. And I remember a friend of mine who took me down there to show me around. 
the heavy heaviness, the eeriness of that whole environment. The church, I can't remember the church that was used as a a rest spot for the firemen, for the first Mm. responders. Um, There's so much memorabilia there. It was really just something, you just don't forget it. Yeah. It's imprinted in your mind forever because it's a part of American history, world history, but primarily American history. Yeah, no, I can only imagine how that was for you experiencing, you know, trying to start a new life in New York, but then also having to assimilate to a recovering uh, community, because I'm pretty sure, like, you know, there were certain communities that, hey, we were in New York, but we were in the outskirts or lived in the outskirts, but then the deep minorities, you know, the African-American, Latino communities who were probably impacted the most, lost jobs, lost loved ones. Uh, uh, And you were probably in the midst of all being, you know, so focused in music. Uh, Well, I mean, I just remember, gosh, this was almost 20 years ago, believe it or not. Um, I just remember, again, people sharing their stories and you could hear the pain still resonate in their voice and in the stories they recalled it never went away you know what I mean that was a pretty I mean even to this day I still I still hear and see things and imagine being again in the epicenter of that so many lives lost a whole financial uh institution everything just crumbling to the ground is there you know um is there a story that resonates with you that somebody shared about 9-11? Really, the one that's... St- honestly, I didn't talk to so many people because when I first got there, it was 2004, and I only knew two people. And so um, the people I did meet along the way were also you know, newcomers to New York pursuing dreams. But when I started to get into work with those who had experienced it, their memories were just of the fear, the horror, the tears, the uncertainty, the questions, how could this happen? Um, Also the love, the unity that it brought together. I got chills right now actually, because it was like strangers helping each other. And if you know anything about New York, people tell you that New Yorkers are, are, are rude and brutal. New Yorkers are just real. Yeah. New Yorkers are real. If you're sensitive, you're not going to be able to handle New York. New Yorkers are just real. Oh. Well, they don't they don't sugarcoat shit. Yeah, I I've, I've had uh the experience of and privilege of going to New York a couple of times and I do remember one instance uh we were standing in line and somebody just got really mad and angry and started shouting. But everybody else was very normal, cool, very like, "Oh, this just happens on a daily. It's New York. You yeah. put up with it and you it's move on." New York. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, after New York. after 10 years of being in New York, what was your best memory and what was probably the memory that you wish you had forgotten? Oh, God, honey, the list goes on and on. Um, I, You know what? Honestly, there is nothing that I regret. Yeah. Always. Because I truly believe that that 10 years, that experience made me who I am today. Because prior to moving to New York, I was very sensitive. I had tons of insecurities. I was very sheltered. So 
I don't regret anything. I think my greatest memory is the courage to leave my family and everything I knew, my friends included, everything that was familiar to me and just go balls out and 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 fly 3,000 miles across country in a place I visited for a week, wow. knew two people, had no job. And I said, fuck it, I'm out. I think that is my, my greatest memory. Um, as far as like, if there were really something that I wish that I could change, my self-doubt. Yeah, wow, that's powerful. Honestly, my self-doubt. I wish I wasn't as doubtful of myself as I, as I was then. I wish I could have believed in me more. But the lesson is learned. Yeah. And I feel like people all learn that lesson in due time, some sooner mm -hmm. than others, and it helps propel their career. Others will know up until the day they die, you know, that self-doubt yeah. is what killed them. And it, it, it's sad, yeah. but it's a, a reality. Mm -hmm. So a lot of self-doubt comes from your upbringing, too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Our cultures have a lot of that because you're told and you're uh, kind of trained to assimilate to this country and, hey, do A, B, C so you can have D. But we're over here like, yo, I want to skip A, B, C, and D and go straight to Y, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and then Z. Like there is, I, I don't yeah, want to do no it between. Yeah, straight line. Yeah. Like this. Yeah, they want you yeah. to be so systematic. And I think this country wants you to be so uh, systematic and, and, you know, follow. Yeah, they want to put you in a box. Yeah, yeah. We're not a box. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not a box, baby. Your I'm not a box. Your last day. I've in got all kinds of curves. <laughs> yes, yes. Your last day in New York, when you finally decide uh, to go <laughs> on to the next chapter, how was that conversation with your parents? uh or prior so i did not really make that decision based solely off of my family i was just sick and fucking tired of 10 years of the struggle i was of course i was never more poor than i was in new york the hustle I life mean, um it was the hustle and it's not like you can hop in your car and drive over to somewhere you know, you're walking in the middle of a blizzard to get to the train to get to work. Wow. It's not like, you know, or it's 100 degrees out and you're walking down to the subway station and it's 100% humidity and the stench and you're just and the rats and the garbage. I mean, don't get me wrong. New York is still amazing, but <laughs> that comes with loving New York. Yeah. So um, what had happened, I think, ultimately was this was kind of the final decision maker here, the straw that broke the camel's back. I'd gotten my dog, Brooklyn. Uh -huh. I had, I decided to get my dog, Brooklyn, in February of 2013. I brought him home and I was living in an apartment at the time. And, you know, irresponsible and immature. I never thought, let me check my lease and see if pets were allowed. I was oh. like, fuck it. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to have a dog. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I was a good dog parent, but I didn't check the lease. So long story short, as Brooklyn started to age, um, my neighbors suspect had seen that I had a dog. Um, they'd see him in the elevator. And so they reported me. Oh, my gosh. And yeah, it was really and they made up all kinds of lies. The landlord told me. So the landlord said to me, look, 
you can either live here with out your dog or you can move and take your dog with you. Love the New York accent. So, <laughs> I have to do that. I have a whole character on that. So um, I was like, all right. So I sat there and I thought about it. And then I told him, fuck you. I'm not staying here. You can keep my deposit. I'm leaving and I'm taking my dog. I'm never giving up my dog. I'm committing to this dog. I committed to this dog. Yeah. He was at that point, that was in July. I think he was five months old, five and a half months old. Uh-huh. And um, I knew a co- I knew a girl who was driving from Connecticut to California at the end of July of 2013. And she had asked me earlier on if I wanted to go and I hadn't made the decision yet. And then I finally said, you know what, I'm going. I got rid of all my shit. I packed up what I could. Brooklyn and I hopped in the back of um, her car and we drove across country for eight glorious days. Me and my little guy and her and her friend and her dog. Yeah. That's amazing. That was that's such a story. New York to California, and did you have mm. a place? I mean, you had family to stay with. You didn't have a job, clearly. No, I had the best time. I sat in the back <laughs> of that car. I didn't drive. I didn't have a license. It was just me and Brooklyn cuddled up in the back. We went through um, all different states. I didn't have a job. No, I. Um, we stopped in. Tennessee. We stopped in Texas where my sister lived. We stopped in Arizona. Gosh, all 11 different states. We took the Southern, the Southern route. Uh And then um, one of the things that I had said to myself the whole time on the way here was I kept saying to myself, um, working for other people is clearly not working for me. Mm. So I will never work for anyone again. And I decided in that car on that on our way back that I would never work for anyone and that I was going to figure out my own business. I was going to start a business. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I just knew that I was never going to work for someone else again. I was fucking done. I I, I believe you because yeah, I get it. I get it. Having to report to somebody else, it's. I think I don't think it's in our personality, um, and hence why I started a mm-hmm. business too. Obviously, I still have my nine to five, but I love what I do. When I was working at a university and I was yeah. working, uh, you know, for a nonprofit, literally a nine to five job, I'm just like, oh my god, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. <laughs> but I love to talk. So no, it sucks working. Yeah, I did. I did corporate. I was miserable. I was miserable. I would cry every day at my desk. The last six months of my corporate life, every day I would just start bawling like a baby. And I was so miserable. And I'm like, I'm not doing this. Why am I torturing myself? Yeah. Why am I doing this? I'm going to struggle. It's I'm always going to struggle. Whether I have money or don't have money, I'm struggling by working at this job I hate. Right? So I get it. I mean... So yeah. you, you arrived to California with Brooklyn. What motivates you? Yeah. Did you, did you, your dog training program, was that the first business that you thought of or did you start other businesses? No. Gosh, this is kind of a, uh, okay. So when I got here, I, um, I, I started pet sitting. Oh, 
I got into pet sitting. Um, I started taking care of people's dogs, like when they would go out of town, right? Uh -huh. um, and then I would do cute little things like um, leave. Are you there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm right here. Oh. Like, okay. I would do cute little things like write handwritten notes and leaving a fresh bouquet of flowers for them when they would come back. So my business started to grow that way. I liked having that little like, you know, extra touch, that personal touch. So that started growing my business and my name and my reputation. And then one thing led to the next. Um, and I started uh, walking dogs. But then this one dog fell into my lap that um, I fostered. He was five months old. And then I ended up keeping him. And then around seven months old, he started showing really, really severe food aggression and dominance wow. aggression. Like this dog did not have fear-based aggression. He was aggressive. He was born aggressive. It was genetic. Yeah. Um, so he got me into dog training. Like he was the one that, because I wanted to know why was he like that? Yeah. But Brooklyn. He was a chill dog. Was, he was just, um, to this day, he'll be 10 um, next month in January. Never a day, in, he's never been aggressive. He's gotten along with every dog, um, every person, non-reactive, just the ideal dog. Like yeah. this is the dog everyone wants, right? It's just so easy. And then I just couldn't believe that this other little vicious monkey was doing this. Yeah. So I, I started looking around for trainers and I went through a few different trainers. Um, one of them was just awful. Um, his methods were really harsh and abusive, but that got me really interested in dog training. So I, I incorporated what I was learning into my dog's life, into Kona was his name. And I invested two insane years working with him. Unfortunately, um, he was unpredictable. Wow. He would redirect on me. He would get into fights with, with dogs. He would try to kill cats and squirrels. Oh which my gosh. Dogs do that, right? They have a prey drive. Animals have prey drives, some more intense than others, but his, he always wanted to go for the kill. Wow. How did you always. notice that he wanted to go to the kill? Because obviously I've had uh, a dog for the most part all my life. And then we're going, Leo is our eldest and- he is very similar to like Brooklyn in the sense that he was always chill with my other dogs. They will go for cats, but they will just want to play with them, not necessarily Kill. literally bite their head off or something. Mm -hmm. How did you notice this? Did he actually get to kill a cat? He killed a squirrel. Wow. I don't know how he killed it. It was nighttime. He caught it and he killed a squirrel. Wow. But and he also killed he also caught a feral cat in my mom's backyard. And um, so the, here are some things I look at. I look at breed, okay? And uh, I don't know exactly what Kona was. In, you know, in the everyday world, we would call him a pit, not to give bad names uh -huh. to pit bulls or a bad reputation because Brooklyn is pit bull and Rottweiler and mm -hmm. Husky. Wow. Um, but Kona was an 85-pound pit bull. Wow. And... I started noticing behaviors from puppyhood. 
bad. Those were all red flags, but from five um, to six I didn't understand well. dog behavior. What? From five months, like, because you got him at five months. That's when you adopted him. Right. So around six and a half, seven months old, the first incident was he attacked Brooklyn in the front seat of my car over a Home Depot bag sitting on the floor of my car. They both went to smell it. And I'm, I didn't think anything of it. Like I'd never experienced anything like this in my life. Yeah. And then the viciousness. I could not believe this seven-month-old puppy was so vicious. I was horrified. Did you get him neutered to be like, oh, hey, his aggression? I did. I got him neutered around nine months old. Um, it did not help. Wow. Because that's what they, a lot of people say. Like, oh, once you neuter a dog or spay a dog, uh, their aggression is going to go away. It can help. And then sometimes it can't. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it makes things worse. If it comes to spay and neuter, just do your research. Because there's, there's information out there um, on early spay and neuter and the pros and cons of it. And trust me, I... I did what I could for this guy. He had parvo. He was a parvo survivor when I wow. got him. That's how I ended up with him. Um, he tore an ACL before he was eight months, nine months old. He had a heart murmur. So there was a lot of genetic stuff going on with him. There's a lot of arthritis. He yeah. wasn't even a year old when I discovered all this. So that's a telltale sign. There was a lot of genetic stuff going on with him. And so I invested two years you know, creating structure and boundaries and, you know, making sure that when he ate, he ate in his crate or once he was done, he'd go back to his crate. And I, you know, all the stuff that trainers will tell you to do, make sure he's respectful of space, of you, of the other dog in the home and blah, blah, blah. But ultimately two years into it, I mean, it was very stressful. I couldn't leave him with anybody. Yeah. Um, I couldn't take him to work with me. Um, he growled at a couple of men one, two separate times, and my heart sank because I knew that growl. Yeah, it was an attack. Like, oh, shit. This like is, he was going for the kill. It was an, it was, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, it was pretty scary. And then the final straw was I remember Brooklyn was Christmas Eve. Um, I remember Brooklyn sleeping and Kona was sleeping and Brooklyn shuffled in his sleep. Yeah. And out of nowhere, I kid you not, Kona woke up, leapt, and went to attack Brooklyn. Out of nowhere. Oh my gosh. They'd been sleeping. Yeah. And I'm like, what the fuck? And here I am wrestling with him. He bit me again. Oh, and wow. then I remember grabbing him and straddling him. And kind of guiding him into this bedroom that I had, that uh, this extra spare room. And the light was not on in that room, but the only light that was on was in the bathroom. So I saw part of him and I just remember straddling him and holding his collar, just enough pressure to not create any more defense in him. Uh -huh. But standing there and literally praying to God, God, please don't let this dog turn around and maul me. Yeah. Because I could see that he was giving me the side eye, the whale eye. Yeah. And he was tense. And he was doing this licking. Like it was, it was all warnings. Okay. It were all warnings from him. All of the body language he was giving me. 
And I just stood there in silence and I prayed, please let this stop. And was eventually he, it all. Yeah. No, like, was he ever lovable? Yes. Okay. Because that, that is probably like another thing that uh, people are, who are probably listening are like, wait, was this, did this dog ever show any love towards Absolutely. the owner? Uh, because we have lovable dogs who tend to step out of line and uh, attack other dogs or show these signs. Mm -hmm. So you end up forming a bond to a certain extent with this dog. And I'm assuming this is the one that you've talked to me about that. Unfortunately, he had to be euthanized. Yeah, it was behavioral euthanasia. He was just too dangerous, unpredictable. Wow. Like, how is that? Because after two years with him, you probably loved. <laughs> Let me tell you, man, I cried every day for a year and I'm not exaggerating. Wow. I would be driving and suddenly I would be boohooing yeah. out of nowhere. The guilt, the shame. I felt like I failed him. I had people shame me. Dog trainers have shamed me. Rescues that I'd confided in had shamed me. They told uh -huh. me, don't ever tell anybody you did this. For years, I held on to this. I was so afraid to be judged. But let me tell you what I have realized. Safety is first. Yeah. Safety of my person, of other people, of children, other pets. It made his life, it limited his life. Yeah. Right? And although I did my best to take him out, to do stuff with him, um, it was always, I, al I was always, he was just one of those dogs you had to constantly manage. Yeah. Because dogs would, believe it or not, it's just crazy because it doesn't happen now. Like just when I owned him, dogs would break out of their backyards. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Of all dogs, why do it, does it have to be when I'm walking this dog for somebody's dog to break out of the backyard? Because a fight would happen. Yeah. And it was vicious. Yeah. And so um, he was lovable. He was goofy. He was silly. He was funny. Um, but he was willful and he was stubborn and yeah. unpredictable. You know, you have to think of what's more important. What's more important? So by the time yeah. that you had him, um, did you already, like at five, six months, did you already start your dog training, um, uh, like your company? Yes. Yeah. I had started, I was, I was pack walking. I started pack walking and I was, I was pet sitting. Um, so he was really kind of the reason uh, for me to get into dog training because I was so bewildered. I was so boggled as to how I could have one dog who's just this angelic dog and have the polar opposite. Yeah. And so I wanted to understand what that was, what caused that. Um, and, I, and, you know, in retrospect, I made some mistakes, of you know, course. but I made mistakes because my experience, my, my reference point was Brooklyn, like mm -hmm. Brooklyn. I did everything with, Kona that I did with Brooklyn. My, but the only thing, the biggest difference was I got Brooklyn at six weeks. Kona, between the ages of seven, eight weeks and 16 weeks, uh -huh. it's where you imprint all these super positive experiences on their little brains. And that's 
putting them in the car, exposing them to the vacuum, to trash mm. trucks, um, seeing other dogs from a distance, anything that leaves a positive, uh, everlasting experience on there. Okay, so there. yeah, I have a question because right now you did say, uh, you know, seven to 16 weeks is when you have to have some exposure or exposure with Um, with your dog. Hola, ¿qué tal? Te saluda José Quintero y espero que estés disfrutando de este capítulo de Echale Podcast. Pero vamos a platicar de un tema que te va a encantar, porque si eres padre de familia, si eres estudiante o si eres maestro o maestra, pon mucha atención, porque te quiero contar sobre la beca nacional de hacer de McDonald's. Desde 1985, McDonald's ha otorgado más de 33 millones de dólares en becas y esta vez no va a ser la excepción. Porque este año McDonald's está dando 500 mil dólares en becas y puedes ganarte una beca de hasta 100 mil dólares. Pero ahora más que nunca ayudar a estudiantes hispanos a hacer más que las generaciones anteriores, a hacer más de lo que creían ser capaz y hacer más de lo que pensaban que era posible por sí mismos, por su gente, por su cultura y por un mejor futuro. Para más información sobre la beca nacional hacer de McDonald's, visita mcdonalds.com diagonal hacer aprende más porque puedes ganar una de 30 becas where we left off is you mentioned that socialization and exposure happens between 7 to 16 weeks and I find that Uh, 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 something that a lot of dog trainers or new dog trainers don't know just because they're scared of dogs not having all their shots or vets say, hey, you can't take them anywhere until 20 weeks or 15 to 20 weeks until they have their full vaccinations already. But when I got Benito, which is about to be a year ago, December 10th is when I got him. I began his dog training December Uh, 10th, the day I got him and I had already taken him to the vet. Uh, Well, like I took him to the vet like two days later and so he got on his first car ride and I asked the vet, hey, my dogs, my friend's dogs are vaccinated. Can I take him Uh, to to their backyard so that way that he starts socializing their smaller dogs. She said, yeah, you may. It's actually very good yeah. for a dog. So ever since he was 10 weeks, uh, we started taking him to see my other friend's dogs. And I think that helped him because he doesn't bark on walks. He'll look at other dogs. Other dogs will come rushing at him and he will get startled but he won't try to chase after them unless it's a cat (laughs) right and that could also just be genetically that Uh he's just not he doesn't have a high defense drive yeah dogs have different drives prey drive defense drive pack drive um and so it could also just be that you know i every dog is different this is another i think something that a lot of people Like I made that mistake and I see this a lot with dog owners, right? I have Brooklyn, he's an awesome dog, super easy, take him anywhere. And then I had Kona, who is a great dog, but management case through and through. And so you can't raise them completely the same. Some Kona needed way more rules, Yeah, way more rules. Brooklyn had, more liberty and privilege. And a lot of my clients say this to me too. It's like, hey, you know, um, my old dog was not like this. And my first response is, well, yeah. first of all, you can't compare the dogs. Yeah, It's like having 
kids raised in the same family, same house, but you got four, three, two different types of personalities. Everyone has their own set of issues, blah, 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 blah. Um, that's number one. Two, you also, everybody, although they have similar genetics, again, pack, prey, defense, drive, and whatever, you have to look at the breed too. Like uh -huh. what is, what were they bred for? Those are things you have to take into consideration. Yes. Yeah, so. Where did the, who yeah. were the parents? What were the parents' temperament like? What were the aunts, other litter mates? You know, yeah. is this a low, medium, or high energy dog? You, these are things that people have to consider that they don't. Because I think the first thing that people do when they go get a dog, whether it's through a breeder <laughs> or through a shelter. Yeah. My dog picked me. It was so excited. Oh my God, you're so cute. You're so cute. You're so cute. That's the last dog I would ever take. The one Ooh. that's jumping all over me. The last dog. Got it. Got it. Unless you want a dog who is high energy and you can match that through exercise, fulfillment, you know, but also create an environment where they do know how to chill it. Yeah. It's really important. So, yeah. So people don't consider these things. I actually want to, before um, we go into how to pick a dog, because a lot of people are going to start picking a puppy for Christmas, and then probably your top uh, tips for new dog owners, I want to kind of do like a little review on the session that we had about two weeks ago with Benito, because I obviously started reading about dogs, uh, well, about the Golden Retriever before I got Benito, I started socializing him. He is so spoiled uh, going out for walks, but still I've had some behavioral issues with Benito. So literally I had done dog training with two different dog trainers and my last, not my last resort, but uh, you were recommended to me by uh, another dog trainer. And I'm like, you know what? Okay, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to give it a try. He had already recommended you in the past, but I was so kind of like, oh, hesitant about it until I finally decided to do so because he was... The last straw. Yeah, the last straw. He was attacking my eldest dog. Similar situation with Brooklyn and the dog that you had to be, you had to get euthanized. So when you told me the story via social media, I was like, please, God, I don't want this... Like, I don't want Benito to go to this route through this route. So when you came in, I was like as open as I could. And one of the first questions that you asked, why did you get a dog? So I, I thought that was like, oh, okay. So we're we're going way beyond the dog. We're going, we're starting with me. Yeah, because I want to first say a couple of things um, because people can you know, be quick to ju judge. I didn't just euthanize to get rid of a dog. It was yeah. a behavioral euthanasia. It's something that happens when the behaviors cannot be, um, cannot be, I don't want to use the word corrected. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue, but you, you can't help rehabilitate. Yeah. That's number one. Uh, two, um, you, your Benito is nothing like Kona. Okay. I promise you that. Although you're having some issues in the home, um, it's not the same. Because yeah. I know both, I've met both dogs. I lived with Kona. They're not the same. Um, two, uh, finally, three, I'm a relationship-based trainer. Yeah. What I am always going to address first and foremost is your relationship with your dog. 
because more often than not, that is the root of a lot of your issues with your dog. And I try to tell this to people and they, they act like they're listening and I give them the tools and the tips and then they'll practice for a week and then they drop the ball Uh or I don't know what happens because I don't live with, with clients and then shit hits the fan again. So here is the rule of thumb. And for anyone who's considering bringing a new dog home for the holidays, first of all, please make sure that if you get a dog, the person you're gifting it to wants the dog. That's number one. Because people just gift these pets. This is a living, breathing thing. This is a 10 to 15 year responsibility. This means vet bills, exercise, trainers, good quality food, traveling, pet sitters, emergency vet visits. You have to think about all these things, right? Um, So those are just a couple of things. Um, When a dog enters your home, this is what I've been taught from one of my uh, mentors, Nelson Hodges. When they enter your home, they're entering and they're assessing, they have a survival. The number one rule in the animal kingdom is survival. Under that umbrella is food, shelter, water, procreation. People could deny it all they fucking want. I've seen it firsthand. I know this is true. So when a dog enters the home, it's looking to see who's going to provide food, shelter, water. Uh Okay. Are you, how are you establishing yourself to this dog? Are you going to be the owner that's going to baby talk and coddle and offer affection to a super excited puppy? Are you going to be the person who once you put that puppy in the crate that first couple of nights and it's screaming, you're going to get up in the middle of the night or every time it cries, open that door and put it on your bed. I'm going to tell you right there, don't do it. You're separation anxiety. Mm -hmm. You are creating a dog who's going to live in an anxious and or fearful state of mind. This is not that you want. This is not a balanced dog. Then you have to consider, okay, well, I'm going to bring in this dog and I'm going to set up some rules, boundaries, you know, structure. Puppy will bring it in. Everybody will be calm. Let it use its nose first. Let it smell us before we touch it, before we play with it. Let it scope out the environment. Start off with a small area in your house. Don't give it too much freedom. Don't give it too much space. And then from there, start, you know, crate training and then playing a little bit, a little bit of training here, a little bit of training there, potty breaks, et cetera, et cetera. The first year of a puppy's life, this blows people away. 16 to 21 hours in the crate. Yeah. What would you say? A lot of people say, that's so cruel. You're literally making them live in a crate. How cruel of you. How could you keep a dog gated and... You know? Yeah. Um, What I say to them, well, isn't it more cruel that you have a dog that may display some fear and stress and doesn't have a safe space to retreat to? You have a bedroom. Yeah. You can get in your car and take off if you're feeling a little overwhelmed. If you live with a family, everyone needs a space to feel safe in. And that's what the crate does. That's what the crate provides. I'm not saying that your dog has to indefinitely be crated for the rest of its life. 
But if you start off in that first year with your dog being crate trained and your dog loves it, then why take it away? Yeah. That crate is going to prevent your dog, your puppy that first year from one, peeing and pooping all over your house, two, destroying or possibly ingesting something like computer wires, TV wires, shoes. That's a vet bill right there that you don't want to pay. And sometimes it's even fatal. If a young puppy eats something it shouldn't, then you get a blockage or something like that. Um, you teach it to self-regulate its emotions. So if I had a puppy, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to take Jack's out for 30 minutes. Uh-huh. First thing I'm going to do is take him immediately out to go potty. That's the first thing right outside of the crate. Get your crate close to a back door, a sliding glass door and say, let's go. And as soon as he goes potty, reward, good potty. Give him about 10, 15 minutes, then a little bit of play, then a little bit of recall, you know, he, give him a little, some food, have him chase you every time he comes, reward that because you want to start establishing some recall, get eye contact. That's yeah. a whole different, it's a lot of information. But you want to start establishing a solid routine where your interactions are positive and healthy all while your dog is learning. But yeah. learning how to be respectful of you and your environment and others in your environment, how to interact and coexist in your home environment. This is the kind of stuff you want. You want to teach your dog to be respectful and mindful, not teach your dog to be an erratic mess jumping all over your furniture and destroying shit. Yeah, I remember when I first got Benito, that was probably one of the the toughest two, three months trying to potty train him. And he was in his crate. I was waking up every two to three hours, um, you know, taking him outside, saying potty. So that way he knows potty means we're going outside, do your business, and then we can come back in. Uh, but it took him a, a good amount of time. Did you sit? Yes. Let me ask you a question. Did you say potty first or did you say potty after he went potty? Potty. Oh, potty first. There you go. Okay. I said potty. Your dog doesn't know potty. Mm. At that time, he didn't know what potty meant. So you want to, well, we, we call it marking the behavior. Yeah. So if um, once he does urinate during yeah. that, as soon as you see him go pee or poop, good potty, good boy, oh, okay. good potty. Yeah. because That's when you mark yeah, because I was not say- before because the dog doesn't know it. Ah, okay. So I guess to him, potty meant like, oh, we're going outside. And then once he yeah. was outside, I would say like potty, potty. And then once he actually went potty, I'd be like, good boy, good potty. I, I would say that after he did that yeah. too with the word, but you're right. right. He probably associated the word potty with we're going outside. Because to this day, he right. I say potty in the morning, like him and the other dogs get up and they're like, all right, we're going outside. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh. They're going outside to go potty. Yeah. Now probably Yeah, yeah they're then. probably like, hey, yeah. we actually so, need to. How yeah, about- it's important to remember that like when when you give your dog um a command, the timing of when it's done. You know, like oftentimes people I'll see people like I see this on social media a lot. It makes me want to pull my freaking hair out like you know, people will come home, they'll turn their phone on and they're recording the destruction that the dog, you know, did in the house while they were gone and they want to punish the dog then. Oh, That's yeah. two hours later, even 10 minutes later. 
That dog doesn't know what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah. Dogs understand the here and the now. You have seconds, literally seconds, to, to communicate a like or dislike of a behavior. It's not hours later, seconds Question. for a dog to connect to you. How do you, is it possible to still crate train a dog after the first year? Because a lot of people probably listening are like, wait, but my dog's two years old. And if I get a crate now, what do I do if he starts crying and barking and he won't shut up? Like, it it breaks my heart to see him like that for 10 minutes, you know? Absolutely. Okay, so if you have followers that have an older dog that wants to... They want to start crate training. Get a pen and paper because this is how I would start it, okay? First and foremost, make sure your crate is the right size for your dog. What would that look like? Let's just say your dog has to be able to stand inside the crate with the top of its head not hitting the bottom of the top of the roof. Mm-hmm. There has to be space. Your dog has to be able to circle around comfortably. Your dog has to be able to lie down and stretch its legs comfortably, not cramped. Your dog has to be able to lie on its side and stretch its legs out comfortably, not crammed. Number one, you got to make sure the crate is a good fit. Number two, I like to cover my crates. Some dogs don't like it. They may overheat, but I like to cover the crates. Um, It prevents a visual. Three, If your dog's never been crate trained, if your dog's never slept in a crate and it's always slept with you, you're going to have some challenges. The biggest challenge is typically the human. Yeah. I would recommend starting to feed all of your dog's meals in the crate. Do not lock the crate on them initially the first few days. Do not slam them in there and then slam the door. Do not do that. The crate has to represent a safe space, okay? So another thing I like to do if the dog's never been crate trained is open all the doors to the crate. So some crates have one door, some crates have two doors. Benito has a two-door crate, right? Yeah. Okay? I'll open all the doors and let the dog feel comfortable smelling it, going in and out at its leisure. No pressure right now. It's just familiarizing itself with this crate. Let it go in and out. You can even toss some treats in there. Okay, go get that treat. If you'd like, you could put a bed in there. Something that they love that feels very comfortable for them. Again, let them go in and out. If they choose to rest on their own, fantastic. Add some food in there. Feed your meals in there. Then once your dog, if you notice, hey, my dog went in there and laid down on its own, wait for it to go into a a sleep, a very relaxed state and then close the crate door for a few minutes and wait. How does the dog respond? Is it still calm? Good, go chill for 15 minutes. Is the dog losing its mind? Hold on, don't open that door just yet. Mm. Because you're gonna tell your dog in this moment, if you bark and cry and howl and paw, and I come and open this door, that behavior works and you're gonna get your way. Yeah. So, I would just, I typically would just sit in front of the crate and wait the dog out till it's calm and falls asleep, just supporting it and comforting it that way without touching or talking. And once it's relaxed, I'll open the crate door. Okay. So, well, I mean, I have many steps, yeah. but I, it's overwhelming if, if, 
if it's for, like, for, for for dog owners. Yeah, because I don't want to overwhelm everybody. No, of course, because sometimes Benito will lay in their sleep. He could be in there for two, three hours, four hours, and he's chill. And then there are times where he's just excited. And even like when we give him food, he's eight in there and he's like, I already want out. And then he'll start barking and do okay. and I'm like, Dude, So here's wait. another thing with crate uh-huh. training. Don't just put your dog in there without exercising it. Okay. Your dogs need to get out and your yard is not enough. Yes. That's boring. Would you like to be in your house seven days a week? I mean, I go crazy after two days. Yeah, that's true. I know me. Like I'm I'm out every day. So you got to make sure you exercise your dog. I don't know, long walk, some play in the backyard in addition to a walk. If your dog is good off leash, maybe a local, you know, I don't want to give any advice on that. I don't want to tell people to take their dog off leash because I don't uh-huh. want anybody coming back to me and be like, a beer told me to take my dog off leash and the dog <laughs> has zero recall. Um, you just have to make sure that the dog has been physically and mentally exercised, fulfilled, stimulated. And then this is what happens when a dog comes back to And oftentimes you see this with dogs who went out to run or play fetch or even a walk. They come back and they're adrenalized. Oh. They're still going. Yeah. 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 So if you immediately toss them in the crate, that could be a struggle for them. It's a stress. You know, it's stress because they still have all this energy that they're still releasing, all these um, chemicals that are still released from the body. It's like you you coming home from a long day of work. You don't you don't just walk in the door at nine o'clock and throw yourself on the bed and go lights out and I'm asleep. That's true. <laughs> it's like I you got have it. to wind down. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So does your dog. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. That's interesting. One of the yeah. one of the other topics that I wanted to get into because you're also very much of a holistic type of trainer uh, with food. Uh, we all know that there's good quality food. There's bad quality. As a new dog owner, maybe our first initial uh, exposure to dog food is pedigree. And, you know, like wet food or dry basura. food. Okay, so it's basura. Basura. Yeah. So what what would what would you recommend for dog food? And okay. I know it could be, um, get a little pricey. For- and is it wet food or dry food? What is better? Okay, I'm going to give your followers, your listeners, a couple of things to check out. Am I allowed to? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Okay. So there's a documentary on Amazon. Okay, write this down called Pet Fooled. F-O-O-L-E-D. Pet Fooled. It's a documentary on how these pet food companies, uh, where they resource their their meats and products and what goes into this stuff. Kibble is probably, it's not the best Uh food to feed your dog. Okay. But there are different varying qualities of kibble and the better, the the more premium it is, the more you're going to fork out. However, you can supplement some of these, some of this kibble with, um, some raw food. You can you can you can do raw food. There's I I, I personally feed my dogs uh, um, origins kibble. Mm. Um, o r i j e n s. I think it's spelled o o o r i j i n s. I have to look it up. I can never remember. It's origins kibble. It 
God, it's like from 100 to $140 a bag. Oh, wow. Here's the here's the shitty part. Mars, the the um oh yeah the Snickers the candy company they bought out Origins, so now you have a major multi billion dollar corporation who's purchased this really premium kibble, and who knows what they're going to do to it. So, so just be careful with the ingredients. Called Signature, Uh like Signature. It's still decent. Not as expensive as Origins, but it's not like Pedigree or Purina or any of that other crap. You got to look at the first five ingredients. Yeah. If it says chicken meal, if it says corn fructose or whatever the hell it says, soy or all this. Okay. Origins, it's O-R-I-J-E-N is what it's called. So um, you can supplement that with like some herbs um, ground turkey, uh, chicken. You just have to make sure this the stuff's decent quality. Yeah. Here's a great book that you can check out. I I love it. It's called the uh, Forever Dog. Um, I'll pull it up right now for you because I can never remember the author's name. It has incredible information on dietary supplements and alternatives that you can add to your dog's kibble for longevity and offers good nutrition and diet. Um, It changed the way I look at how I feed my dogs. I even stopped using candles in my home. Wow. Because mm -hmm, this book talks about, it's incredible. Um, It's called The Forever Dog. It's a husky on the cover with a red flying cape. And the author is Rodney Habib and Karen Shaw Becker. It's a New York Times number one bestseller. Uh, you could find it on Amazon, on Audible, at any bookstore. Uh, it's pretty intensive. They go through a lot, a lot of great information. Like if you really want to give your dog some of the best years of their lives, this is a good read. That's awesome. One thing I also wanted to talk or touch on with food is I see a lot of pet owners uh, just filling up the bowl and, you know, giving their dogs seat and kind of letting them be. So free feed, is it called free feeding? Correct. Okay, cool. (laughs) So is that a good way to take on a dog or is that a bad approach to? Okay, so typically I do not free feed. Okay. Um, and I will let you know this. I used to free feed Brooklyn, but Brooklyn was a grazer. I had, I never had to worry about obesity with him. I have another dog, Louie, that if I free fed that guy, he couldn't walk. Yeah. Like he's just a little fat, little pit bull dachshund. All he wants to do is eat. Um, so here's a couple of reasons I don't free feed. Obviously obesity Two, um, as a trainer, I'll use food to train, to condition behaviors, to teach a behavior, right? And so I'll use the dog's food and I hand feed them their meals. So there's a few things happening. I'm working, I'm building their work drive, their drive to work by building their food drive, their drive to gain the resource, the food. And it's also coming from my hand, which leaves my scent on the food, which makes me... I want the dog to earn its meal. Yeah. I'm not starving a dog. 
time to earn a meal. And there's nothing wrong with that. You and I earn meals. We work so that we can make money to put food on our table. And so animals in the wild have to hunt sometimes for days to get fed. Yeah. Right. Um, our dogs are fortunate enough where, you know, we provide them two meals a day. Yeah. So here you go, buddy. You ain't got to do shit, but look cute. Exactly. Exactly. Abir, any <laughs> yeah. last uh, recommendations, tips for dog owners that you would like to leave them with? You know, I get this question a lot. Your dog is a dog. It is not a human. Yeah. Your dog is a dog. It is not a human. And if you have, if you currently have a dog and you're having issues with your dog, and and, I, and I'm going to say outside of genetics, outside of genetics, if you want your dog to change, you have to change the way you interact with your dog. Wow, that's powerful. It's it's like a relationship. Well, if you want a better relationship. Communication is key. You have to learn your partner's communication style. And you have to set boundaries. Yeah, adapt. So if you get a dog that every time he sees the leash and you tell him, hey, we're going to go for a walkie and you pull the leash out and now the dog's jumping all over place, knocking shit down. Here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Stop telling your dog, one, that you're going on your walks. Mm -hmm. Shift it. Do it in silence. When your dog sees the leash and it still gets excited, put the leash down. Put it up high. Just hang the leash somewhere where the dog sees it, but you're not going anywhere. Teach the dog that in order for us to go on a walk, you have to be calm. It's going to take a while. Because what you're taking out from what, what the state of mind you have inside your house you're taking out with you, especially if you have dogs that are reactive. So yeah, your dog is not human, yo. <laughs> but I feel like you could apply a lot of these uh, techniques to kids out in the open. If your kid is acting out, calm, wait until you like calm down and then we can go or calm down and then I could probably get you a toy. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> honey, honey, you'd be surprised. I've, I've incorporated... And, and I don't want anyone to be offended, but first of all, kids and animals are very similar in that they need structure and boundaries and leadership. Um, I've applied some of the shit that I've done with dogs into kids without them realizing. And it's just like, what did you say? That they're all looking, <laughs> paying attention. It's crazy. Uh, well, thank you yeah. so much, Abir, for this time. Uh, where can people find you, follow you, or if they want to get in contact with you? Okay, so you could check out my website. Uh, write this down, you pretty little people. Uh, no bones about it, petcare.com. Or you could check me out on Instagram at no bones about it, petcare LA. And then I'm also on TikTok at the same handle, no bones about it, petcare LA. If you want to shoot me an email via my website, you certainly can. We can get connected. Maybe I can help change your life and your dogs. Yes, yes. You've already started with ours. So thank you so much, Abir, for your time. Yeah, I, I need an update. It. Oh, we're, we're going to go on Sunday for that community walk because you do those often. So follow her on Instagram because she definitely posts. And I think they're very beneficial. Well, will be. I'll yes. be there Sunday. <laughs> yes.
I hope to see you there. I'm glad. Thank you so much for having me. I hope I didn't talk too much. Oh, I love talking. <laughs> like you're right up my alley. So we're both talkers. <laughs> Thank you so All much, Abir. Right. I've been told I talk a lot by my family. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. All right.